Today we are going to be considering that title that is given to the enemy, which is the tempter. Last week we considered uh, Satan as the deceiver, that deception and lies are the foundation of everything that he does. Jesus himself said that he is the father of lies, that, that lying is his native language. And as I shared with you last week, what we're going to consider today and then next week are essentially the two ways in which he brings those lies to attack on our lives. And that, um, and that is through temptation, which is uh, his alluring uh, us to act upon our already broken nature, um, to function in independence from God. And then on the other side, and, and this is kind of the classic one-two punch, hey, it's not that big of a deal. God will forgive you. Go ahead, just give yourself to this thing. And then it's the, the other side. God will never forgive you for that accusation, uh, the, the condemnation, the guilt, the shame. And we all, we all know this, these tactics because we've all fall prey to them, most of us every week. Uh, and so uh, we're going to consider today just this, this powerful reality that, that the Scripture is very clear that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the principalities of this dark age, against the enemies uh, of, of the kingdom of God, that there is a spiritual reality behind what is seen, that evil is personal. Uh, it is not, uh, it's not a, a creation of the human mind. In fact, I always argue that probably most of humanity uh, believes firmly that there is personal evil, uh, maybe more easily than they believe in Jesus as king. So I want to begin with a passage that I hopefully will uh, utilize to establish the hope in all of this, uh, and that is in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. It's the great Christ, Christus is victor, uh, Christ is victor uh, passage in which we are told, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise, Jesus, partook of the same things. God, the Son of God, became human, took upon himself human flesh. And look what it says, that through death, through the death of Christ, why we need to continue to keep the cross at the center of everything we do, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. It's an interesting statement. That is the devil. Remember what Jesus said. He refers to the devil as the ruler of this age. He said, the ruler of this world is coming, but he has nothing in me. He says, listen, that he is the ruler of this world. In fact, First John says that, that the entire world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And Jesus says, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world already looking through the cross. And this is what Hebrews declares, that Jesus became a human being, took upon himself, took upon himself sinful flesh. He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God, and that he, through his own death, conquered the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and to deliver all of those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Remember what he said? Whoever sins is a slave to sin. And Jesus says, but if you hear my word and you abide in me, you will be my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will what? set you free, and he himself is the truth, as we just considered in our last series. And so Jesus has come to not only conquer the devil, but he also conquers sin. 
and so that we can be set free from the slavery uh, that we have found ourselves in. And then look what it goes on to say. Therefore, he had to be made like us in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to keep those or help those who are being tempted. So we have a God who understands. It's the Dorothy Sayers quote from Creed or Chaos. Whatever game God is playing, he has played fair and taken his own medicine. We refer to Jesus as the sympathetic high priest because he didn't just simply identify with our humanity. He identified with our lowest point, our sin. And we are told that he himself suffered when he was tempted And we're going to consider the great temptation story in the Gospels today when when after Jesus' baptism and he is filled with the Holy Spirit, is led into the wilderness and he fasts for 40 days. And, and, And at the end of that fasting, Satan comes and tempts him. And the suffering that Jesus experienced through the temptations was the temptation to choose a different path than what the Father had chosen for him. To free himself from being the one who would carry the brokenness of the world to its bitter ends, the one who would taste hell for us so that we could experience him as salvation. And so I love this because what this tells us about temptation is that even God understands it. He was able to take it to its full finish, the the brokenness of humanity without failing. This is why we can trust him. This is why we can look to Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith, that he is the great former, he is the architect of our salvation. And so temptation, when we think about what temptation is, let me just state out of the, at the beginning here that temptation itself is not a sin. It is the enticement to sin, whether arising from desires within or from outward, out, outward circumstances. Now, here's the thing. Uh, how do you define sin? Because that's really important for us to be able to define if we're going to say it's the enticement to sin. Well, that's great as long as we can actually define what sin is. And I would say that, as I've stated before, sin is not the little things that you do wrong. It's not a measurement of how bad you are. It's a measurement of how good you're not. That when we sin, that means that we have missed the mark. God's, God's perfection is is. Is not, it's not possible for us in our own ability to achieve that perfection. Our salvation is dependent upon his perfection in his son over our lives as we put our simple trust in him, our total dependence upon him, that we place our faith in Jesus, which it means that we allow Jesus to be for us, in us, and through us what we cannot be for ourselves. But how I would define sin then in its essence is essentially independence from God's rule. It's a rejection of God's rule, a rejection of his grace. Augustine may even have been closer uh, to to the truth of what sin is when he stated that sin is essentially disordered loves or displaced loves because all desires and urges are natural and good. Sin is acting upon those desires and urges in the wrong way at the wrong time in the wrong place. it's, It's a perversion of God's good creation. He created us to feel, to want, to have needs, to have desires. Every desire has a counterpart fulfillment, but 
Satan uh, playing upon our sinfulness, the fact that our whole being has been infiltrated by this thing called sin, it means that, that the image of God has been deeply marred. And, and it creates within us a disorganized or disordered loves. This is why Calvin really just reinterpreting Augustine said that the human heart is an idol factory, that every time you pull up one idol, it just uncovers a whole bunch of new ones. And this is why the longer you walk with Jesus, you'll, you'll think, I've overcome this area of temptation, only to discover that Satan comes at you with the same thing, just from another angle. Because he has no new tricks. As C.S. Lewis describes the devil in screw tape letters, he isn't capable himself of creating desires. He can only pervert them, distort them, and get us to act upon what is already broken in our own lives. And this is why I think that sin is, in its essence, disordered love. That is causing us or place, tempting us to place other things upon the throne of our hearts, the place where God himself should be. And really, the, one, the, the, the best thing that, that Satan does uh, and is the most damaging is getting us to continually put ourselves upon the throne of our hearts. This is why Satan is not interested. Uh, you know, when you hear about Satanists who, you know, yell out, hail Satan, I think that Satan's like, stop it, you're, you're ruining my tricks. Don't point, don't, don't point yourself. I, I think he probably likes it because they look ridiculous because he's not interested in, in our worship. He's not, he, he, is, he, is, he is the absence of good. He's the father of lies. All he cares about is that we function in independence from God. He hates God. He hates God's creation, especially the center of his creation, which is us. And we need to understand that. So how do we understand then temptation? And let me just say this uh, in regards to Satan as a tempter and in, in, in playing upon our own brokenness. James is very clear. It says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Remember, it says here in that, in that Hebrews passage that Jesus came to conquer the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and this is why we say on the cross that Jesus is victor over sin, death, and the dominions of darkness. And that is good news for us. And this is why Satan hates it when the cross is put, put in the center of, of what we as God's people talk about. Because the cross is his defeat. He loves churches that don't talk about the cross. Because the cross is Jesus' victory over Satan. Satan wants us to forget that he is already a defeated foe. That victory is not something that we work toward, it's something we work from. Satan is continually trying to get us to believe that is not so. That your sins are not forgiven. That you are still dead. Because sin brings death. And as the unman in Paralandria declares, I have come to give you death and to give it to you abundantly. That is the antithesis of what Jesus has come to give. I have come to give you life and to give it to you abundantly. So Satan plays upon the nature, the sin nature. If he died today, we would continue to sin tomorrow. And so the way that I like to say it is the enemy amplifies desire to encourage impulsive, independent behavior. Uh, some of his best work, in fact, is done in the church. 
This is why Paul is continually warning us of this very reality. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, it says, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Again and again, Paul is, Paul is warning the church or even chastising the church. Ever notice that about Paul's letters? He always starts off so nice. It's always like, beloved of God, saint, called to be saints, grace and peace with you. And then he's like, you're so foolish. Who's deceived you? It's just like he hugs and then stabs in the stomach. It's just like, ugh. And, but one of the things he's concerned about, one of the things that he's fearful of is that, he, is that the enemy is at play amongst God's people. And the place where we are often the most deceived is, is when we're closest to Jesus um, that we, we don't see our blind spots. And the enemy can come in in ways that, that actually does great damage to the church. And we see Paul again and again warning uh, the Corinthians uh, had fallen into trappings that were, they were diminishing the gospel and elevating their um, spiritual gifts uh, to an unhealthy place. And there was pride creeping in. There was sexual sin um, creeping into the church. Uh, and all these things that continue to be a part of the church's broken narrative today. Um, and this is why we need to continue to understand how the enemy brings his deception into our lives so that we can care for one another as a community of faith that lives in light of the victory of the cross. So I think the best way for us to um, dig into how Satan brings temptation into our lives is to actually consider the temptation of Jesus himself. And it begins here in Matthew chapter four, and I wanna just start with the conditions of this temptation. Remember, Jesus has just been baptized, baptized into a baptism of repentance. Uh, he's identified with human sinfulness. John the Baptist didn't even want to baptize him because he saw him as sinless. And he's like, you should be baptizing me. And he said, no, let it be done for that righteousness might be fulfilled. And he's baptized and the heavens open and the father declares his love for the son and the spirit descends upon him. Jesus becomes the full image of what the spirit-filled life looks like and immediately we're told that the spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. And Mark, I like it, it says the spirit drove him. Here in Matthew um, chapter four, verses one and two, it says then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness. And notice it doesn't say that the spirit tempted Jesus. It says the spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after four, fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And so there's this great spiritual battle. The scripture is relatively silent about the kind of battle that Jesus was facing for those 40 days. But here we have this reality and uh, that now the end of the 40 days, the fasting, and we find the, the perfect conditions for satanic attack. And that is in the midst of spiritual growth, Jesus is now stepping into his full office as the carrier of the message of the kingdom of God. Uh, and not only, not only was he giving the message, he himself was the living embodiment of that message. Uh, which would be fully spoken through the work on the cross uh, and through the resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father. But Jesus is already experiencing, I always say that the entire life of Jesus has saving significance. And here he is, is beginning this spirit-empowered journey. And I would say first and foremost, we need to understand that it is in moments where we, we are experiencing great growth as Christians, where we often are the most... Uh, susceptible to spiritual attack. 
I, and I would just say this, uh, this week is a, a great example. I, Darcy and I have been experiencing this just really beautiful season in our marriage, in the church. It's been so exciting since we've come into this building. It just as we can feel the momentum. Just last week, this, this man accepted Christ right after the service. It's just beautiful the way that God is working. And this, this week, it's like, it's just been havoc, like fighting because I'm, I'm crazy and my wife has to tolerate me because I'm crazy. And the, and the enemy's just been getting in my head and it's funny, I'm studying the tactics of the enemy and he still gets me with the exact same tactics. And this is exactly what happened clear back when Dora Pope began, the first time I taught on spiritual warfare, we got all the way through the series and then it, and then it ended with me going crazy for nine months and almost quitting and almost losing my family. And, and so we have to be so cautious. Times of great spiritual growth is also a time wherever Jesus is working the most powerfully, we can always assume that the enemy is right there, counterfeit working in its midst. And this is why we have to be, this is why I care so deeply about this. The reason we're doing this series is because I believe that God wants to bring a great harvest through the community of Door of Hope, that he is going to bring salvation to a lot of people. And, and that the lost are gonna come to know the living king because of you. But what we need to know is that the moment we enter into an evangelistic impulse, we are getting into enemy territory because we are taking people out of his kingdom. And this is why we have to understand the tactics and even understanding them, we're still gonna find that he's pretty stinking clever. Uh, he's the deceiver. And this is why we don't spend our time focusing on Jesus. That's why we're only doing three weeks on spirit, or excuse me, we don't spend our time focusing on Satan. See what he just did to me? Uh, we spend our time focusing on Jesus. I mean, even, even uh, Robert Murray McShane said, for every one look you take into, you, uh, into your own heart, take 10 looks to Jesus. This should be our MO. The way we battle the enemy actually is by staying at the foot of the cross and gazing at our beloved king who is victor. But here we see this, this is the perfect condition. Jesus is spirit-filled, and now he immediately becomes this, this targeted one for the enemy. Secondly, he's isolated. There is a lot of talk in the church right now about, and a lot of, a lot of interest in, um, in spiritual practices like solitude and silence. And listen, I'm, I'm, a, I, I'm personally somewhat skeptical of the emphasis. And the reason is, is because all I know is that the first thing we're told about, about humanity, clear back in Genesis, is it's not good that what? Man be alone. Now, I, I want to be balanced in this. Uh, Bonhoeffer is, is, I think, is very balanced in his book, Life Together, that a person that can never be alone with God uh, is, is never going to be equipped to be with people. And a, a person that's always uh, and, and a person that's always alone uh, is, is, is never going to be equipped to be in community correctly. And so there is a, a balance. And, and yes, Jesus would go away to be with the Father. But notice, it wasn't, he wasn't going, to be going into isolation to, for self-discovery. He was entering into intimacy with the Father, and he always allowed himself to be interrupted. In fact, he took the time and the night to be with the Father because he spent his days with people. And I think that one of the great 
the great blights on the church, especially in the 20th century, is the abuse of Acts chapter six as, as, as an excuse for pastors living isolated lives from their communities. And I think it's actually one of the chief reasons that so many preachers fall. Um, because it's not good that man be alone. Luther was very, he thought, I, he thought that um, solitude was, he saw it as a very suspect practice. Who He said, it is the devil's playground. The greatest heresies are usually created by men and women spending a lot of time alone who think that they've discovered some secret truth that nobody's ever discovered before. Uh, I, I think that Satan loves to get us isolated. And I can for sure say this, that if you think you can be a Christian without the church, you're fooling yourself. I'm not questioning the possibility of being saved, of knowing, of knowing Christ, of, of having your eternity secure, but I'm talking about if you think you can actually live victoriously without having community in a city like Portland, it, you're deceived. And I ne- it never goes well. Because we're not, we shouldn't be alone. And even, even, even Bonhoeffer said that, that community is a gift of grace that should never be, um, never be taken for granted because you don't know if you, there may be a time when you don't get it, when you won't have it. So I think that that's, that's a, a component of it. And then the, the, the third aspect that I think that we need to keep in mind for these kind of perfect conditions for spiritual attack was just physical exhaustion. We forget that we're not just spiritual beings. We are physical. The battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against principalities of darkness and the rulers of this age. But those principalities are attacking us flesh and blood people. And so sickness Exhaustion, that was one of the things where the enemy got me the, the hardest is that I stopped sleeping. And when you don't sleep, you go crazy. I mean, literally, you go crazy. And in eight months of not sleeping, like three hours a night, is, is not good. And that's why we, we need to be holistic in how we care for ourselves. Our body is the temple of God. We should, we should actually be, you know, he says, physical exercise profits a little. I'm grateful that it's just a little. Um, and, but, you know, godliness profits a bunch. And so uh, it's, it's actually what leads to just this understanding that we are victorious. But we need to understand that Jesus had all three of these realities. His ministry is being crowned by the, the fulfilling of the Spirit. His, he's isolated uh, and he's exhausted. He's hungry. And so how does Satan come at him? Well, the first temptation is rationalization. And this is a big one in the church. Look what it says. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. If you are the son of God. He knows exactly who he is. But notice what he's doing. He's calling upon Jesus to act in what? Independence from the Father. Independence from the Spirit. You see, what freaked people out when they saw Jesus was not that they saw God in the flesh. What they saw was man as God intended man to be. Perfect humanity. Jesus yielded his authority as the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, to function in a way where he was showing total dependence upon the Father and it was the Spirit's activity through him uh, as he gives us the exact picture of what the spirit-filled life should look like. And here, Satan is trying to get him to act 
upon that which he laid down. Because remember what he says in John. He says, I am ready to return to the glory that I once had with you. So he, he limited himself in his humanity. Do, do we understand that? Where when we, when we, that's why we, we, I get so frustrated with uh, theological jargon that tries to pose God as impassable or immutable, that he never changes. No, he never changes in his purpose, his plans, or his character, but he did become something he wasn't before, which is a human being. And he will carry that humanity all the way through eternity. Uh, so, and, it, and he did that without diminishing at all his deity. I, there's a mystery involved in that. We should accept mystery and quit trying to figure out everything with human logic. Uh, and uh, it, logic may work perfectly, but I promise you we do not have all, all the propositions in place. <laughs> uh, we, should, we, should, we should understand that that's kind of part of what it means to have broken natures. It includes our minds. Uh, so here we have rationalization is the temptation. That sense of entitlement. Uh, he does this with the lie so well. You deserve this. You know how many times I have fallen into the trappings of rationalization for just really crummy behavior? Uh, I, was, I was thinking about this. There was an intervention actually done by my wife and kids like not that long ago, like six months ago. I'm sure there's another one coming very soon. But uh, uh, I, need these, I need these people to, to help cre- correct really bad behavior because uh, I am... I am an impulsive personality. I'm intense. Uh, as Darcy said to me yesterday, she's like, I just want you to just, just calm down. Just write this down. Come down here. Maybe do Tai Chi or something. You know, do something. Uh, but but it, that, that intensity, what happens is that I'm, I'm intense all the time when I'm working, but then I come home and actually they would get the other side of me, which is just the dead zombie who has, they see me alive active, engaging with everyone at the church, and then I get home and I'm, and I'm like the walking dead and have nothing to give them. And I'm in my own little world and put my little, my little headphones in and, and zone out on a book. And, and I'm like, but I, have, I deserve this. I'm pouring myself out for God's people. How Can you not understand? You know how many pastors' kids have been destroyed by that kind of rationalization, and the enemy loves it. Of course the enemy's gonna whisper the greatest lie in my ear, which is probably, hey, your work at the church is actually more important than your family. That's a lie. What's that, that famous, uh, famous line and, and such a lie in Brothers Karamazov where the, there's the doctor and he's like, I love, uh, I love humanity, but I hate individuals or something like that. <laughs> There's, you know, it's, it's that kind of like, actually, that doesn't work. What you just said, that doesn't work. In uh, this rationalization, this entitlement component, we deserve this. This is something that we often do. And think about how Satan loves to help us bury the Holy Spirit's conviction so that we can deflect responsibility when we are, fa- when we are falling into temptation. The porn addict, porn addict says, at least I'm not sleeping with people. The drunk says, at least I'm not a coke addict. The lazy person says, I'm just not a morning person. That's not really fair, because you don't have to be a morning person (laughs) to not be lazy. Once again, I meant to take that out after the first service, and I just read it. So I just wanted to make you, all of you who are really hard workers but don't happen to be morning people, feel super guilty, because we're about shame here at Door of Hope. We're we're about earning your way. Um, uh, The couple sleeping together 
What's the, what's, what's the default? We're going to get married. Minimizing sin is when we manufacture reasons why this particular sin doesn't count. It's a rationalization. And when we're in that perfect storm of isolation and exhaustion and maybe even in being utilized or used by the Holy Spirit for kingdom purposes, that's when the enemy often comes in the most intensely. And we have to be aware of this, temp- of, of this temptation. How do we fight it? How is it that we battle this? Well, the, the, the victory is actually uh, very clear. Jesus in, in verse four says, but he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I love that because Jesus is, is utilizing scripture to combat the temptation. It shows us that the victory, as Paul writes in the spiritual armor, that we are to understand that we have been given the sword of the spirit which is the word of god that's why i I put such a big emphasis on the need for both word and spirit word without spirit is dead orthodoxy spirit without word is is unorthodox mysticism what we need is a balance of scripture but we need the teacher we need the one who illuminates the scripture and when we begin to meditate upon the scripture put the scripture into our hearts and into our minds i think this is one of the things that the enemy does the best job is getting us away from the scripture feeling like this even in, in and if you stay away from it long enough you will begin to believe one of the great lies that the that society propagates which is this is an archaic book that has nothing to say to you today it is so untrue the scripture speaks to every, it, it it is timeless because it's the word of god there in, in its power lies in the Spirit's illumination of its truths. That's why there's plenty of people that it's a dead book in their hands. We need the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit can't illuminate what we haven't put into our brains. And he's a wonderful teacher. The question is, are you a good student? And this is how we combat the reality of it. Look at Jesus is utilizing Scripture, and even, even more powerfully, he's himself declaring he is the final word of God. His man will not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. God at various times and various ways has spoken to us through the prophets and through the scriptures, but in these last days, he has spoken to us in son. Jesus is the word that we live on. And the scriptures point us to him. And the Holy Spirit illuminates him and points to him again and again. How do we know the spirit of God? Keep in mind, this is a spiritual battle. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who's in the, Son of, in, who's in the Son of Man, and Satan, who is a spirit being as well. And this is one of the problems in the church, is that we are not good at, at discerning which spirit is speaking. The question that you have to ask yourself, and the people hear from the Spirit of God all the time that are not hearing from the Spirit of God. They're hearing, and I don't even question that they're hearing spirits. If it, is it pointing to Jesus Christ as King and Lord? That's the question. And that's also the, the foundation of truth. It says only by the Holy Spirit can one say Jesus is Lord. Um, the second temptation is, is presumption. Look what, look what the devil does next. He says, then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God... Throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now, this is a powerful suggestion. Hey, if you're really the son of God, you can't actually die. See, it shows that the devil is not omnipotent. 
or omniscient. He is tempting Jesus to bypass the cross. He's tempting Jesus to blaze his own trail, to, to act upon a presumption. Uh, and, and I think that presumptions are very dangerous uh, when, we, when that temptation comes, comes to us. It's this, it's this desire to, once again, all of these ultimately are connected to functioning and in independence from God which is really what we'll focus on at the end. But you think, you think again on this. Like he's, he's trying to get Jesus to actually go a different path than what the Father has determined for him. You remember what Jesus said, I only speak those things which the Father gives me to speak. I only do those things which please the Father. The Father has been working up till now, and so has the Son of Man. Jesus is under the Spirit's control, and, the, and Jesus, one of the things that he suffered was knowing where he was going. And nobody, even those whom he loved and who loved him, understood it. And so he felt very alone. I mean, when you consider isolation, you have to consider the, the pain that the Son of Man must have been experiencing on a regular basis um, due to knowing what he was having to endure. And this is why I believe that every time Jesus did a miracle, every time he did a healing, he was taking into himself the brokenness that he came into contact with. I don't think it's just on the cross that Jesus had like a sin backpack on. I think that he entered into sinful humanity and, and he took upon himself sinful flesh. That is, every, all the limitations of the human form without himself giving into sin. And the pain and the anguish that that must have caused him why do you think he's called the son of sorrows? Why do you think one of the only things we never see Jesus doing is laughing? I'm sure he'll be laughing plenty in heaven. Uh, but this life on this earth, the pure son of God experiencing the absolute depravity of, of mankind and the continual attacks of the spiritual enemy had to have been, I mean, when you really let yourself think about it, it, it we can't, it's too mysterious. Presumption is a, is a big deal in the church Romans, Paul warns the church against it. He says, do you suppose in, in chapter two, O man, O woman, you who judge those who practice such things and yet you do them yourselves, showing like the hypocrisy that's often at play in our lives when we forget that we are a mixture. Uh, he says, or do you presume, uh, do you, you yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? In other words, the kindness of God the one-way love, the grace that comes to us through Jesus that gives us that firm foundation by which we can stand saying, I am a child of God, I am forgiven. That song we just sang, I am, I am who you say that I am. I have been born again. I have been made new. If anyone be in Christ, all things are new. That standing doesn't change the fact that we still have a broken, sinful nature that we often act upon actually daily, and this is why we need to consistently understand that even the things we do empowered by the Spirit, unlike Jesus, is mixture. And, and presumption is one of those dangerous ways in which, in which Satan tempts us, which is to not take seriously the consequences of sin. So what Satan will do is actually speak something that's true. Hey, you're forgiven, it's all grace, you, you can't lose your salvation, that's true. But what he forgets to tell you is, but you're still gonna blow up your life if you give yourself to this. You're not gonna experience the power of the gospel. You're not gonna have the assurance that God wants you to have because sin kills. 
And so I believe, just as Luther had stated, like, listen, as I shared last night, when he wrote to Melanchthon and said, if you were to commit adultery every day, you were to commit murder, nothing can change or take away from the finished work of the cross. We have to hold tenaciously to that line. But that doesn't mean that you can't make an absolute mess of your life. It doesn't mean that there aren't serious consequences to sin. It, it, it's that reality. Of, you, 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 can you be forgiven and, and experience the love of Jesus and, and forgiveness if you blow up your marriage with an affair? Absolutely. But you still blew up your marriage. You still hurt your family. And these are the kinds of things that we need to understand. Every cause has an effect. And what we say and what we do puts into motion things that do real damage. We need to understand that, and Satan wants to diminish the consequences of sin so that we find ourselves trapped in its loops. And this is why he will try and persuade you to put yourself in situations that you know you can't handle. I think a lot of Christians, where they fall, they, they fall victim to Satan's temptations is they think that they're mature enough to go into situations that they once were not able to handle and then quickly discovered that they're still not really able to handle it. It's like the one who is a severe alcoholic who thinks that they've been gone long enough without a drink and thinks that they can handle the drink only to find themselves back in heavy drinking. It's, 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 it's those, kinds of, those kinds of ways in which Satan wants to tempt us uh, to, to have overconfidence, like Samson who plays on the border of Timnah. It's a wonderful illustration of people that see how close they can get to the fire without being burned and we end up getting burned how do we overcome it the victory is the shield of faith notice jesus says to him again it is written you shall not put the lord your god to test to the test in other words don't test god by functioning in independence or being presumptuous instead we're not called to test god we're called to put our faith in god and this is why Paul said it's the shield of faith with which you can extinguish those flaming darts from the evil one. When we put our trust, remember what I said about faith, faith is a disposition toward Christ that allows Christ to be Christ in and through us. It's that whole reality that faith is allowing the Holy Spirit to occupy you with the adequacy of Jesus. And when we allow that reality to sink in, it's the shield of faith, it's simple childlike trust daily in Jesus and his victory that actually defeats the enemy's attacks. The enemy wants to get us away from that simple trust. He wants us to do the exact opposite. Believe in yourself. Listen to the lies of your society. Which brings me to the final temptation, and it is really one towards selfish ambition. Verses 8 and 9, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. What's really fascinating about this passage is that Jesus does not deny that Satan has the power and authority to give the kingdoms to him. He calls him the ruler of this world. This is why we need to take seriously the enemy. Even though he is defeated, like Augustine said, he's like a wounded dog. And nothing is more dangerous than a wounded dog. And so we have before us this Satan offering to Jesus the kingdoms of the world. He says, if you will bow down to me, I'll give you everything. And, and what is Satan tempting Jesus to do here? To put himself first. To make himself 
the master of his universe. But Jesus is already that master, but the way that he brings mastery to the world is by the upside-down kingdom because the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. It is not found through eros, self-satisfying, self-gratifying love. It is found through this mysterious reality that is unique to God's very nature, which is agape, self-giving love, the one-way love of God, the grace that comes toward us, unlovable people. He loves us not because we're lovable. He loves us because it's his nature to do so. Satan is trying to get Jesus to act selfishly. And man, it didn't work with Jesus, but it really works well with us. I like what uh, James uh, Smith said. He was speaking on Monday. Uh, He wrote this uh, new book on Augustine as a pastor. And he he had the greatest quote. He said, said, we have traded the hope of immortality for the hope of going viral. He says, we are not created for likes. We are created for love. What's amazing is I immediately posted both of those on Instagram. And, and then I went to lunch with him and I sh- I'm like, hey man, look what I, look what I posted on my, I, I just started really using Instagram and I, I, posted, I posted your quotes. I hope it goes viral. I hope, I hope your quote about wanting to go viral goes viral for me. And then he goes, he just shook his head, he thought it was funny. And then he goes, I don't use Instagram, I use Twitter. I'm like, oh. I think that's the, the smarter, that's like the next level. I'm not that smart. I'm going to stick with pictures. I like pictures. <laughs> but I just think that what it, it's so true, like how quickly we fall into the trappings of self-promotion, of putting ourselves first, of falling into that temptation to take our lives into our own hands, to make ourselves little gods. And, 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 then, and then we don't understand that what we're doing is falling prey to the lie that the attention of others will somehow make us happy, and it never does. It never satisfies. That's the whole essence of Augustine's confessions. The whole reality of disordered loves is this idea that we fall into the temptation to make things supreme that were never meant to be supreme, and what we find again and again is that those things never ultimately satisfy. We're trying to fill something that only God can satisfy, and this is why he begins confessions with that beautiful phrase, oh Lord, I am restless until I found rest in thee. And, and, and this is what we need to continue to come back to because we must refute the supreme lie that independence is the source of liberty. It is slavery and it is death and death in abundance. We were not created for independence. We were not created for freedom in the sense that the world promotes freedom. Freedom, from the Christian perspective, is actually coming back into accordance with what we were created for, which is to be servants, actually. God's servants. People that bring God glory. We were created for his glory. But that is actually our satisfaction, that is our joy, and that is our only hope. And we need to quit trading the hope of eternal life with Jesus for the hope of going viral, which you'll be known today, an influencer, and then forgotten tomorrow. Any person that's primarily an influencer today, even the greatest influencers of today, and and I've lived long enough to know that the most famous people, unless you're Brad Pitt, he just keeps going, he's rocking it, but most people, even their fame is this blip, and and then they're forgotten, and and even even the movie stars, 
the greatest stars in the world are, are generally not remembered by their grandchildren's grandchildren. Legacy is a false dichotomy. I just read this new book by Christian Wyman, and he talks about it. He's like, everything dies when it comes to what humans are capable of making. The only hope is the life that we have in Jesus. He's like, I used to think that my eternal life was dependent upon writing poetry that lasted. He goes, but I'm convinced that there eventually won't even be eyes to read Dante. And I think that there's a lot of truth in that, a lot of wisdom in that. We need to place our hope in things that last. And this is why the final victory is the helmet of salvation. It says, then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. Notice the the complete power and authority. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only. I will not function in independence from my father, for I and my father are one. Satan is essentially trying to divide the Godhead itself. I think he still continues to try to do that. For every great lie actually, I think, propagated in cults that have sprung from Christianity is the diminishment of Jesus' deity and the, and the full power of his atonement. He says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. I love this closing passage that you have the angels of heaven ministering to the Son of Man. And I just want you to know that Jesus wants to minister to you. He has come. His Spirit is the Comforter. And the message that He wants to bring to you is that you matter to Him. That He is not content to exist without you. That in Him you are forgiven and Satan wants you to not believe that you're forgiven. You're forgiven in Jesus. When we put our trust in Him, not based upon what we have done, but what He has done for us, we experience forgiveness. We experience new life. We experience victory. Jesus is victor. Satan has been defeated. He has nothing in Christ Jesus. And that is why the safest place for us to exist is abiding in Christ. And every time we disconnect ourselves from him, every time we close the door, I feel like he knocks on the door every day. The question is, is will we continue to invite him in? Again and again, will we continue to come to him for new hope, more grace, more love, that we could become conduits of that salvation. And this is why we need, as Paul writes, the helmet of salvation that is placing over our lives that our standing before God is that we are in Christ and that Christ is in us. That our salvation is not something that is earned. It is not something that is worked for. It is something that is worked out in the context of relationship with one another. And this is why we need one another to be able to to encourage each other to experience the victory that is ours because Satan wants to isolate us from God and from one another so that he can breathe his continual lies into our lives, causing us to believe these falsehoods that, 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 hey, it's not, that, it's not that big of a deal. You deserve this. He, he's going to continue to breathe this presumptuous idea. Hey, God will forgive you. Just give yourself over to it. He's going to encourage you to, to put yourself at the center of your own universe. And every one of those temptations lead to death when we give ourselves to them. Temptation itself is not sin. Satan's job and goal is to allure you by amplifying that temptation until you give yourself over to the flesh, until you disconnect your dependence upon God and place yourself as the center of the universe. But the worst master you will ever face is not the devil, it's you. And this is why Satan has come to bring death, but Jesus has come to give you life.
He's come to give you life. And so, let us be a people that put on the spiritual armor of God. Let's take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, a people that are filled with the Spirit in the Scriptures. Let's be a people that live with a total dependence upon Jesus, the shield of faith, and let us cover our minds and saturate our minds, being transformed in the renewing of our mind with the good news of the gospel, because that's what the world needs to see in us. That's what the lost is looking for. And when we go out and bring Jesus' good news to the, to the lost city like Portland, I promise you that Satan is gonna be right there in the midst trying to bring about a counterfeit gospel, trying to dismantle the work that God is doing and will do through this community. We have to believe it. We need one another. We need Jesus. And we need the Spirit of God. Amen? Let's pray.